Well, we're coming to the end of our series here on the gates of Jerusalem during Nehemiah's day. I know that's a sad thing to hear. But, you know, these gates are pretty interesting. They, they have a lot of truths that they can speak to us about our spiritual lives because we're in the age of Nehemiah in that sense where God is building up his church and establishing his church. And he wants these spiritual gates to be in us and to be formed in us within his church so the enemy can't get in, so that the enemy can't cause trouble and havoc and have access to us as God's people. And so we look to these gates to be built. You know, we look to the the sheep gate, knowing Christ is the good shepherd and following him as the sheep who hears his voice and the fish gate, right? Responding to that call of Jesus to be fishers of men, mankind, we should say, men and women. Um, but in doing so, he, he transforms them because he does the work as we are faithful to plant the seeds of faith in others. The old gate, the following that foundational pathway that God has ordained for our lives. And it's like we're aligning ourselves with the ancient and solid rock of Christ. And, you know, we don't need the newfangled ways. We have the way of Christ, which was written from the beginning. The valley gate, got to know the God of the valleys because that's where his name, that's where he placed his name in the holy city as we looked at the dung gate, right? We're not the pleasant one, but yet God works in us. He removes those weights of sin that so easily beset us. The fountain gate, the refreshing water of of the Holy Spirit, you know, that well of living water being established in our lives that strengthens us and encourages us. We're imbibed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then the water gate, revealing and knowing the Word of God in our lives, experiencing and then living according to His Word. And then we come to the eighth gate. So I know you're all excited to hear about the horse gate. And, you know, we can look at, a, at the picture of uh, Nehemiah's Jerusalem. We see the horse gate was was. There's a little bit of space between the water gate and the horse gate. Horse gate was kind of up closer to the temple. Supposedly, the, the uh, Solomon's stables were near this gate. I don't know if that's true or not. And the horses came out of that gate. I'm not entirely certain about that, but that's where the, the, their, the name, the horse gate, got stuck to that. Um, but there's several things we could look at concerning horses in Scripture that can, can speak to us, um, that have meaning for us. But, and I want to consider two thoughts, and they kind of contrast each other. And, and let's look at Psalm 20 and verse 7, where the psalmist says, Some trust in horses, or some trust in chariots, and some trust in horses, but we, meaning the people of God, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And so horses, in this connotation, were kind of negative, right? I mean, there's that negative aspect as far as as the king of Israel was concerned because he was instructed not to 
multiply horses. In fact, that was one of the commandments of the king in Deuteronomy 17 is that, you know, they were not to multiply horses. Solomon became a great king. He didn't just break the commandment of multiplying wives. He actually <laughs> broke the commandment of multiplying horses too because he, he ordered horses and chariots from Egypt and, and he imported them. But, you know, God was warning them not to do that because it would cause their heart to look back to the ways of Egypt and to the, how Egypt put their strength in natural means in horses and chariots. But God didn't want them to have that connection and, and, and because in a way it would damage what God was trying to build. And of course, the, the kingdom of Israel was damaged after Solomon. It was split in two. In fact, Solomon's portion was much smaller, but it was because of what he did that in not following the ways of God, he didn't put his trust in the name of the Lord. So in a sense, horses can speak to us of our reliance or maybe an unhealthy connection to the world. I mean, we live in the world. There's, there's parts where we have a connection, right? I mean, we got to have jobs and got to pay bills and, you know, got to be mindful of, of living in that sense. But yet there's, an, there's a sense here of an unhealthy connection, a reliance. Second Timothy chapter 2 in verse 3, you know, Paul was exhorting Timothy to watch out for this. And, and he says, you must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And what is part of being a good soldier? Verse 4, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And that, so that's one of the requirements is of us as soldiers of, of Jesus, not to become entangled with the affairs of this life. You know, so that they hold us back, so that they pull us aside and distract us from what really matters in life and eternity. You know, Solomon became entangled with the affairs of life. And he, and he had a desire to be connected with the kingdoms around him in an unhealthy way. I mean, as, as one of the strong, if not the dominant kingdom in the area, you are going to have connections with other kings. You know, you're going to have relationships. But yet David had that, but he wasn't entangled. But yet Solomon set his heart in ungodly ways and became entangled. And it damaged and divided the kingdoms, the kingdom. And so when we set our eyes on the things of this life and we become entangled, it, you know, as kind of as a key means of reliance, right? As solving our problems and helping us and being a, receiving direction or satisfaction or something like that, it will also damage the kingdom of God being built within us, of God wanting to establish his kingdom in us. And so there's a warning there with horses. But, you know, a horse is not all negative in Scripture, right? It has some, some positive meaning for us. In fact, we're looking for that hope when we look for Christ coming again. Revelation 19.11, John saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. We're looking forward to 
seeing Jesus come again on a white horse to make war and judge the evil kingdom of the Antichrist. And, and thank God he won't be alone. He'll have mighty saints. Well, hopefully we won't be on earth. We'll be riding with him. right? Hopefully we'll be in that mighty army. When Christ comes to conquer the enemy. And, you know, it, it speaks to us of God's purpose. One of his purposes in life is, is to train and to make us ready. You know, we, can re- we already read Paul's admonition to be good soldiers uh, in Christ Jesus. And if there's one thing we know of Paul's words is that he clearly conveyed is that we are on the winning side. We are on the winning side of the story. It, sometimes it doesn't feel like it when we look with our eyes and with our senses and so forth, and we feel like we're being overcome. But, you know, at the end of the story, we are on the winning side. And God's purpose is to transform us in this life into one of his soldiers as a part of his mighty army that conquers the enemy. In Romans 8, 35 and 37, Paul lays out all the difficulties that are going to oppose us, right? He talks about tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. And the list probably could go on of the difficulties that one can face in life. Job could probably add a couple things to that list. But, you know, here was Paul's outlook. He and, and Paul himself could have added more to that list too. But here's what he said in verse 37. He lays out that list and says, But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. In all these things, in every single one of these tribulations, these difficulties, and all of these things, we are more than conquerors because we are fighting more than a natural battle. We're fighting a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual gate as well, right? And so we're fighting our battles in the spiritual realm, as Paul clearly told us in Ephesians 6 and verse 12, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's where the real battle is. It's in the unseen world. The hard part is that the spiritual battles can engender natural problems, right? Of sickness and fear and doubt. And, you know, sin can act, it can really affect whole nations in a physical way. But I love Paul's outlook. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. We're more than a conqueror through Christ who loves us. You know, God wants to build up the horse gate in us, in our lives, in the church. And in order to do that, he might have to remove some of the natural things we rely upon. You know, maybe there's an entanglement and that happens to the best of us where our heart gets entangled or our mind or our eyes or something. And he has to work in us. But it's that he might cause us to trust in the name of the Lord And in doing so, we become more than a conqueror. Why are we more than a conqueror? 
Because we're not just overcoming natural things, we're overcoming spiritual things. That's why we could, in the natural, we could conquer cities and nations and kingdoms. But someone who follows Christ and overcome is much more than a conqueror because they're overcoming eternally. And that's what Christ wants to do in our lives and to make us a good soldier of Jesus Christ who's more than a conqueror because we're overcoming eternally. There's a lot more we could say about this gate. Probably have a whole sermon on this pretty easily. But uh, I wanted to look at these two other gates as well and kind of close out our series here. And so the next gate, if we can look at our slide again, the next gate that Nehemiah mentions is the east gate. The east gate. It was just north of that. This is kind of a unique gate, um, and it's associated with the coming of the Lord. And to understand this, we have to look forward to the millennium and then back in history. Um, and, And so looking forward, we consider the prophecy in Ezekiel, Remember Ezekiel talked about his temple? Well, he had a lot to say about the temple that's going to be built in the millennium. But one aspect of that temple is, we won't look at the verses associated with it, but but basically in in Ezekiel 44 and and chapter 46, um, it talks about a gate, a gate that faces to the east. And it's reserved for the prince who is David, but also for the Lord, the God of Israel. And that's his gate. And he's going to come in that gate. And his glory will enter the temple and dwell with man. And so this east gate is is kind of associated with the coming of the Lord in Scripture. Well, I said looking forward and then looking back. Well, so in history, the the enemy of of Israel understood this. And so when the enemy conquered uh, Israel, you know, the Muslim armies conquered uh, Jerusalem, they closed up the east gate in the year eight, around 810. Right? And so uh, in 810, maybe making a statement, well, he's not coming in this gate. We've walled it up. Well, then the uh, crusaders came and they unwalled it. <laughs> you know, they opened it up. And then, well, they were, they were defeated. And so Saladin came in. And he walled the gate up again. And, and actually, they were all destroyed in an earthquake. I forget which year it was, but it must have been a strong earthquake to destroy a, a lot of the walls. And so then Suleiman the Magnificent rebuilt them as they are today. And what did he do? He walled up the East Gate. And we have a picture of that that we can show you. Today, it's called the Golden Gate. But there's a picture of that all walled in, but you can see kind of the outline of, of that. Now, I, I'm not saying that Jesus is coming through that gate because what Ezekiel t- is talking about is not yet built. So who knows if that'll be standing. There's going to be, Bible talks about some pretty powerful earthquakes coming. So who knows what happens in the holy city. Um, and But it's probably built on the same spot as the gate Nehemiah was talking about, except it would have been a little lower under the ground in Nehemiah's day. There, what modern Jerusalem is like 20 or 30 feet above ancient Jerusalem. Uh, But really what this gate speaks to us is of an East Gate experience with God. Or that maybe you could say that God desires to have with us. Psalm 24, 
verse 7. Here's the, where the psalmist cries out, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts will enter into our gates. And so this gate can speak to us of how the Lord longs to come in to our hearts, right? The gate or the door of our hearts, we can say. And of course, he does so at salvation. But yet here's David speaking to the people of God. And yet there's that same longing, you know, that the Lord is desiring that his people continually lift up the gates and the door of their heart that he can enter in and dwell with us. And to lift up the gate of our hearts and allow him entrance into our day, into our life, into our problems, into our loves, into you know everything about our lives. And when we do that, the King of glory, the Lord strong and mighty on our behalf comes in. The Lord of hosts comes to fight our battles. And of course, this lifting of our gates is something that that's to be continual. You know, day after day that we lift our gates to him. 1 John 2 and verse 28, where John the Apostle is talking to the church and he says, Now little children, abide in him, meaning abide in Christ, when, for, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And so there's this thought of when we're lifting our gates continually to the Lord, that's that part of abiding in Christ, of allowing him to continually come in and enter the gates of our heart. And as we do so, we will not be ashamed when he appears and enters in. You know, Because when he comes again, we will dwell with him eternally because we dwelt with him in that way on earth, so we'll dwell with him in heaven. And so we, we want to have that Eastgate experience with God day by day. One last gate. The last one is, it uses the original, well, in, in many translations, it uses the original Hebrew word. It's called the Mifkad Gate. The Mifkad gate, um, or as, as we see in, in back on the, our illustration of, of the gates of Jerusalem, um, it says here the inspection gate. And this would have been kind of on the, on the east side of the Jerusalem. This would have been the northernmost gate on the east side. This word is only used a few times in the Old Testament. And it basically, it means assignment or appointment. And in his book, Pastor Bailey called it an appointed place, a gate of the appointed place. Uh, some translations call it the gathering gate. Uh, according to tradition, it was at this gate that David would meet his troops to inspect them. I don't know if that's true or not. Who knows? But it's a nice thought. But, it, but the thought here is of, of an appointed place, a place of review. And, you know, you could kind of carry that thought 
farther and say that for each of us, God has appointed a place for us to be in eternity. That he has a plan and a purpose that's unique for each of our lives. And that was written before the foundation of the world. You know, the angel said to Daniel at the end of his visions and his long ministry, he said this in Daniel 12, 13. He said, Daniel, go your way and you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. That was Daniel's promise. You know, he had, he was in his eighties now and he'd or 90s maybe, and he had had a long life of ministry, of obeying God, of being faithful when he was in a prominent place, but he had a long stretch of years when he was in obscurity as well. But he just wanted to be faithful to God. And the angel said, Daniel, just continue on because you're going to stand in your allotted place because he had been faithful. You know, he followed the plan of God for his life, faithfully walked with God, and he would stand in his allotted place. You know, Job also had a sense of that place in eternity that he would be. You know, he must have had a vision of it or, you know, a sense of, or a word from God on it. Because even in, in his deepest trial, he was able to look beyond it to eternity. And he, he said these words in Job 19.25. He said, you know, I'm going through all of this, but I know my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand in that latter day upon the earth. Right? And so we've been talking about Jesus coming again, and he's going to come upon the earth and reign for a thousand years. And Job, it's like he had that sense, I know my Redeemer comes. And though after my skin, worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, I'm going to see God. I will see him for myself. My eyes shall behold not another. I will see him in that day. You know, Job knew that he had an eternal position and he would see God with his natural eye. You know, it's the idea that he would dwell close with him. And that was a comfort to him in his trials. In a time when everything was being was overwhelming. And that mentality, it, it affected how Job lived. It, you know, even though he possessed a lot of things, I mean, he was like the richest man around. But he realized that all that stuff didn't really matter. You know, earlier in his trial... The first phase, right? Phase one of, of Job's trial, and he lost all his possessions and, and his family, his children. And he said this in Job 1 and verse 21. He said, Well, I've lost everything, but naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gives, and the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, this speaks of an attitude an outlook that we are to have. You know, the temptation is to look at life and our experiences and, um, you know, and what happens to us here and let that be the primary focus of our existence. Like that's what we live for, is this life and the experiences we have in this life and so forth. Meaning we make our decisions based on what we can see with our eyes, what we can obtain, what will make our life better. 
But that usually equates to just getting lots of stuff so we can have a good time. But someone once said this. They said, a baby is born with a closed fist, but a man dies with open hands. Meaning that death is the great equalizer. It removes everything that we achieve in life except what is eternal, except what matters for eternity, what God has done in us and what we have done for him in other people. And what makes Job's declaration so great is that he was not just declaring that God gives and takes away. Right? That, that almost makes it seem arbitrary, that he, he gives something good, then he just snatches it right away. But I think we can understand from the whole story of Job that that's not what he's saying. What Job is really saying is that God gives and sometimes he takes, but because he's good, he always gives more than he takes away because he's giving us something eternal. He's giving us something glorious to those who follow him. And so we want to keep that as our our focus, our perspective in life. And so the gate of appointment or the gathering gate, it speaks to us that God has an appointed place for us. He has a plan and a purpose, an appointed time that we will appear before him. Right, And of course, we know that time of the the great white throne of judgment as, as it's talking about. And as Paul mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, one last verse, where he describes this. He, he says, For all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive of the things done in his body according to as, as he has done, whether it's good or whether it's bad. And so we're, in one sense, this gate speaks of the culminating experience of mankind where every person is going to stand before God and answer for how they've lived. But what this gate also speaks to us is that we want to stand before God having lived for him, having followed his pathway that he's appointed for our lives. You know, that we live with that outlook that Job had in life. Uh, he has a plan for me. And I know that no matter what has happening in my body, I want to live for, for that time of standing before God and Him being pleased with my life. You know, if we live according to that concept of God's plan for us and we follow the Lamb wherever He leads us, and live our lives as he directs us, then we will stand before him and we'll see him with our eyes. And maybe we'll see a few of the saints there as well who have done the same, like Job and Daniel, who have also lived for him. And so these gates have some powerful connotations for us. right? There's things that God wants to build up in us to establish in his people, well, some things he wants to remove too, like that reliance upon the things of the world. And, you know, instead remove that and instead make us more than conquerors. You know, I just think about that, that concept. The world just thinks about being a conqueror, what they can get, right? That's the spirit of this world. Don't 
don't care about the little guy. You just, you do whatever it takes to get what you want. That's the spirit of this world. That's a conqueror. But Christ is calling us to be more than conquerors by overcoming in the spiritual realm through prayer, through obedience, through lifting our hearts to him. And we become eternal conquerors. To teach us to lift up the gates of our hearts so that the king of glory can continually come in and dwell with us. And then to live according to God's plan and his pathway for our lives and ultimately see him and dwell with him for all eternity. And Lord, we thank you. Lord, thank you for your pattern that you've given us from heaven. Thank you for these many gates and experiences that you want to build up in our lives. And Lord, we, we ask you as the wise master builder to come and do that. Lord, we invite you. Lord, if there's weaknesses in our wall or in our gates, Lord, would you show us and, and reveal the, the work that needs to be done? Lord, give us humility to allow the rebuilding process, the tearing down. And Lord, we ask that you would come and build up. Lord, establish these wonderful truths in you because, Lord, as, as this culminating gate says and talks about, Lord, we want to see you in that day with our eyes. Lord, we want to have lived a life for you. Lord, where we have lifted up our hearts and dwelt with you and that we fulfilled the plan you have for us. Help us, we ask. Lord, forgive us where we haven't fulfilled that plan and rebuild us and change us into your image, we pray. We thank you. Lord, we look to you. We set our hope in you that we will see you in that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.